0: I invite you to open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. We will be in verses 18 through 21 this morning. We'll read a couple of extra verses just to kind of throw in the beginning of this paragraph because we're jumping in in the middle of a conversation that Paul is having with this church. This morning, as we've been walking through what it means to worship Christ, uh, we've seen from Colossians through the importance of our worship being driven by the word of God. Then in John chapter 4, we've seen that our, focus, uh, our worship is focused on God and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And then last time we were together in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we saw the importance of wholehearted worship, that God's worship, my fault, thank you. Lauren, children, if you are planning to head out the door or parents with children, uh, you can do that at this time. Totally forgot that. I'm totally out of rhythm here. No one. Well that should be an easy group this morning then. All right. Well I forgot, but here we are all together safe and sound. All right. And today we are going to look at spirit-filled congregational worship. So Ephesians 5, we're going to see this central truth that spirit-filled congregational worship beautifully displays the power of the gospel. Spirit-filled congregational worship beautifully displays the power of the gospel. So Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick up reading in verse 15. Ephesians five fifteen. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ submitting to one another out of reverence for christ i will stop right there the 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 thought goes on but recently i was watching a man and this man i could tell immediately upon seeing him that something was not quite right he was stumbling a little bit. I wasn't sure exactly what it was, but the more I watched him, the more I realized that, that there was something going on with him, and he was trying to get in the door of a car, and as he reached for the door, it was almost like he couldn't grab the handle of the car, and I realized this dude is sauced. He is drunk. He was out of his mind, and he stumbled around, and for several minutes, I watched him And it was kind of one of those things that uh, if if you could see yourself, it'd be embarrassing to go back and watch the video. But he was so drunk that he he literally couldn't tell where he was. And I, I talked to him later. In fact, he told me, he said, I cannot remember a thing about that night. Because he was so drunk that it just literally took over. And if you get in your car at a moment like that, thankfully he did not get in his car drive. But if you get in your car at a moment like that, you can get some pretty serious jail time because you are DUI, driving under the influence, in that case, of alcohol. It could be drugs or alcohol. And so we have, you know, this concept in our culture of living under the influence of a substance. And when we come to God's Word, God's Word says that that's not appropriate for a Christian because we're not to live under the influence of anything other than the Spirit of God. So we have this contrast set up for us in Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk, but live under the influence, be filled with the Spirit. We don't D-U-I, we L-U-I, live under the influence of the Spirit of God. And As I said, we jumped into the middle of an argument here, and Paul is telling us what it looks like to live our lives under the influence of the Spirit. Now, Galatians 5 gives us a list of uh, virtues or fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And this list we have here is much less famous but equally important. And to kind of jump into the flow of what he's doing here, I want to note that, that there's like this introductory statement, look carefully how you walk or how you live, in verse 15. And then he sets up three contrasts, don't be unwise, but be wise. Contrast one. Then in verse 17, contrast two. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then the third contrast in verse 18, and this the one we're going to focus on this morning, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And so what he's doing is, he's setting up these series of contrasts. There's a way the person without Christ lives. Don't live that way, live this way. Walk with Christ, or walk, live under the influence of the Spirit of God. What we see this morning is that rather than living our lives under the control of any other substance, whether it's gaming, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drugs, Whether it's some sexual addiction, rather than living our lives under anything else, food, we must live our lives under the influence of the Spirit of God. The command is pretty simple be spirit filled. Well, if this is the command to be filled with the Spirit, it naturally begs the question how do we do this? I mean, we know how you consume alcohol. How do you consume the Spirit? Well, in John chapter 3, Jesus links two important ministries for us here this morning. John chapter 3, Jesus is in an extended conversation with a leader of the Pharisees, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't really want to be seen with Jesus, so he comes to him at night. And he asks him a question, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers him a rather unusual answer, and he says you must be born again, or you can't enter the kingdom of God. And and Nicodemus hears that, and and if if you're a Christian, and, and you're at all from a church background, you've heard that phrase before, to be born again, but Nicodemus had never heard it. And so he said, you must pass through your mother a second time? Like, how is this possible? And then Jesus explains, he says, unless you are born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so, Nicodemus is hearing these images, these concepts, he's beginning to understand a little more, but he doesn't understand yet. And it's in the tail end of this conversation that Jesus gives us what is likely the most famous verse in all of scripture. You see it on eye black or on a sign at the Super Bowl, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit, is to believe that Jesus is your only hope. To turn to him in faith, to receive him by faith, to stop depending on yourself, to stop looking to anything else for satisfaction, and trust Jesus and him alone. To be filled with the Spirit, we must imbibe, we must receive Jesus Christ. Jesus brings the Spirit to us. And so as we begin here this morning, if you don't know Christ, you can't have the Spirit. Would you turn from your sin and trust Christ today? Now the command here to be Spirit-filled is quite simple. Be Spirit-filled. But the wording is unusual. Paul doesn't say, be full of the Spirit. Rather, he says, be being filled, be continually filled with the Spirit. There's an emphasis on the fact that this isn't a one-time thing, it's something that keeps on going. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul talks about being filled. So in Ephesians chapter 1, he refers to the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that the church would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So in Ephesians chapter 1, the church as Christ's body is his fullness. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says there's a link between knowing the love of God in Christ and being filled with the fullness of God. And then here in chapter 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Well, the parallel passage in Colossians 3, which we looked at several weeks ago, helps us as well. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another it's a parallel passage with a similar meaning so let's link some clues there are a bunch of different pieces going on here being filled with the spirit is to be filled with all the fullness of god it's to know the love of christ it's to let god's word dwell in us richly be filled with the spirit sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs let the word of christ dwell in you richly sing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we are filled with the Spirit by allowing God's Word to dwell in, abide in us. To put it another way, you are continually filled with God's Spirit as you continually digest God's living, breathing, active Word. God's Spirit comes to us through God's Word. I mean, the ministry of the Spirit is a powerful But subjective thing but it comes to us objectively through the ministry of god's word in our lives now look again at verse 18 he says don't be drunk but be filled with the spirit now there's something that may not jump out at you immediately here but it's it's rather ironic it's a command but it's passive and this is unusual so for instance right after this in ephesians chapter 6 he says children obey your parents the command that children do this command however is different it's a command be filled but it's not something we do it's something done to us it's something that we receive we are acted upon rather than the actors in other words as we fill our lives with the word of god then god's spirit acts on us it fill he fills us so, you can't separate the power, the ministry of the Spirit of God in your life from receiving the Word of God. You can't separate the living out of the Spirit's power from your experience of the Word of God in the community of Christ. I mean, Ephesians 1, remember what he said the fullness of God is? It's the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. One reason. That local church commitment is so important is because God has always intended that we experience his word and his power in community. You cannot experience the fullness of all that God intends by yourself, on your own, separated from the community of Christ. You can't be body of Christ connected and body of Christ committed if you aren't connected assembling with a church. That's how we experience the ministry of the Spirit. And then the ministry, the display, the Spirit's power grows in us as we individually and then corporately grow in Christ. Now imagine with me this morning that we're not a congregation sitting here. Rather, we're a football team. Now a lot of South Carolinians are here happy this morning because both teams from South Carolina won. But, you know, a few fans from Georgia feeling not quite as good. Alabama fans feeling pretty good. But imagine with me here that this morning we're, we're here for football. And we come in, and we say, we're a team. we got to operate together. Well, how is it that the team succeeds? Well, it can't succeed in competition with one another. In other words, if the wide receivers don't like the quarterback, that doesn't work. I mean, if the offensive linemen are going to let the defensive linemen sack the quarterback, that doesn't work. we got to work together. But but in addition to that, we succeed as we grow together. So imagine (laughs) you look at the uh, offensive line. And you got a bunch of 120 pound dripping wet kind of guys in the offensive line. You know, you are getting pasted. You got no prayer because you're just pancakes. You're not linemen. You're getting blown over. But instead, imagine you got 320 pound massive man mountain kind of guys. You know, we got a shot, we got a chance here. Because the individuals are strong and we put all those individuals together and then we got a unit and that unit together is strong. But you put one 90-pound middle schooler in that line and you're getting beat. That's the way it works for us too. We grow together corporally as a unit. But we grow as well as individual members devote themselves to the word of Christ. And then as they grow into 320-pound man-mountain Christians, then we're prepared to stick up for one another. Then we're prepared to work together as a unit. But you can't separate the two ideas from your growth in Christ from our growth in Christ. That the two are connected. You grow in Christ, and then we all grow in Christ. So devote yourself to the Word. Meditate on the Word. Let God's Word soak into your soul. Like you're sitting there on the beach and soaking up some rays, let God's word soak into you, deep into you, to where it becomes the controlling passion of your life. When someone pokes you, God's word comes out. When someone prods you, God's word is the thing that spills out. Someone bumps your cup, and whatever spills out is God's word, God's spirit coming out of you because we've soaked our souls in the word of God. Be filled with the spirit. Let God's word dwell in you richly. Now, this is the command. It's pretty clear. Be filled with the Spirit. It's something that God does to us, but it's something that we must obey. But then it produces four different effects. What are the effects of being Spirit filled? The first one, verse 19, is Spirit filled congregational singing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the first mark, first external mark of the spirit-filled life is that we sing. God's spirit moves in us, and it can't help but come out of us. You've been around one of these people, and often they're young. We got one of these in our house. I mean, you can set a particular member of our household right here, and you could tell that child not to move. Now that child could keep their rear end sitting here, but there ain't no prayer in the world that there wouldn't be something moving on that child. His feet would be moving, his hands would be moving. It's like, he can't help. It's going to come out. And the minute you let that child go, boom! It's like they're off and they're running. That's the way the Spirit of God in us is in us. It can't help but be expressed. It can't help but come out. So if when we gather for worship we don't sing, we aren't Releasing the evidence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And there are two audiences for this singing. The first one is one another. Now, some people come to church to listen to a sermon. Well, that's good because I'm here, so I'm thankful for that in one sense. Others come to listen to music, and there's a sense in which there is this listening ministry. Actively listening is an important part of worshiping together, but worship is so much more than that it's actively engaging with it's a ministry of all the gathered people of god to all the other gathered people of god it's not a ministry of a few or one professional or group of professionals to others it's something we all do we address one another in psalms hymns spiritual songs so we care about what all y'all do what we all do we care about the health the spiritual health of everyone in this room It's possible for churches to be so focused at what happens up here that we forget about how important what happens here is. It's not just a few, it's all. The most important sign of healthy worship in a congregation may be the singing of the congregation. But this hasn't always been true. Congregational singing is no small thing, because if you track uh, 500 some years ago, you come to a period of life in the church where you were not permitted to sing. There was a period of time where actually the laity, which is a fancy word for everyone who comes to church except for the professional paid people, where the laity were not allowed to sing. They weren't allowed to take the cup, the Lord's uh, the, the, the the cup in the Lord's Supper. And then we get to the Protestant Reformation. They weren't allowed to pray, to address God directly. And then a guy by the name of Martin Luther was sang one of his um, famous hymns a couple weeks ago, I think we're singing it again next Sunday maybe, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He comes along and he says, no, I read God's word in 1 Peter 2 tells us that you, we, all are priests before God. And Hebrews tells us that we can confidently approach God's throne. And he completely changed the equation to where now it wasn't just a few people singing, it was all God's people singing. All God's people praising God together. The spirit-filled church is a church that loves to sing, that loves to express itself in song, even if the best we can do is a joyful noise, expressing ourselves in praise to God, teaching one another. So there's this ministry to one another and also praise to God, making melody to the Lord with your heart. As we've already seen, God is the ultimate audience in worship. So our ministry of encouragement to each other is a song, then, that we sing to God. I mean, so much music today takes our minds and reminds us of what we already know, or at least think, that we're really important. How do we feel? How are we doing? How? And it's true that God cares deeply about people, individuals, especially his children. But from the very first days of our lives, we're not in the process of needing to be reminded how much we need or we want. It's a constant process of reorienting ourselves to the idea that there is a greater reality in the universe. That there is a center to all things, and it's not me. That there is a God in the universe, and I'm not that God. That there is someone who deserves glory, and I'm not the one who deserves that glory. I mean, you don't have to look very far. You got a two-year-old. Do you have to teach that child to hoard toys or share toys? Share Sharing is a thing that's hard to learn. Giving, demonstrating that there's a reality outside of me, me, me. And so corporate worship is a reorienting of our lives around God, his word, his glory, his priorities. Worship is the point of discipleship. And discipleship produces worship. So we come and we sing, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We're singing praise to God, but at the same time, we're declaring to everyone else around us, the Lamb, He is worthy." You see how it works? You're praising God, but at the same time, dads, you're teaching your children about the worth of the lamb. Husbands, you're, you're demonstrating to your wives. It's not just a dream, it's not just an idea. God alone is worthy of our praise. So what does this tell us about what we sing in worship? How do we choose what we sing in there are three? primary components the first is the substance or what you might call the content of our worship and that is the words what it is that we are singing secondly you've got singability another word for this is accessibility that's the idea that we want it to be something that most people hopefully everyone but most people can sing or at least croak out and then thirdly is style substance singability and style now, I haven't run the stats on this, but it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere north of 90% of church conversations about worship music are about number three style. In fact, my own anecdotal experience tells me this is somewhere north of 97% of conversations about worship. We all talk about style, but of these three, which do you imagine is the most important? Well, it's number one it's the content, it's the substance of what we sing so you could have a song that absolutely gives you chills because it's so musically amazing but it doesn't say much you could have a song that is mind-blowing in terms of content but it's not one you can sing like all these things matter but the substance the content matters the most I mean we could sing what is a very ordinary tune but it could be saturated with God glorifying lyrics that should move our souls. So, what would a good teacher be without a couple of examples? I brought with us some illustrations. And don't worry, we're going to pick on both crowds, the traditional and the contemporary. Don't worry here. Well, I've got here two songs on the screen. And by the way, none of these is like so far outside of scripture that I think, "Oh, you're sinning if you sin-. that, that that's not the point here. The point is that there's some that are better than others." So one that we don't sing a lot these days, but maybe you hear typically at a funeral or something like that, I come to the garden alone. How many of you know this song, or at least I come to the garden alone? It's basically a testimony of someone's uh, relationship with Christ, like a devotional relationship. It's fine, but it may or may not, you, you may not come to the garden alone. You may go with a group, or you may not go to the garden at all. It's, it, it may be difficult to connect with like on a corporate level, but the second song, again, is a traditional hymn, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. That's objective truth declaring the glory of God. All right, let's try a couple of modern, more modern songs. One of these, the first one you recognize there, we sing, I cast my mind to Calvary. We sing, um, O oh, praise the name. Great, great song. Second one, uh, called Good Grace. I don't know if you may or may not know this if you listen to more contemporary worship music. Don't let your heart be troubled. Hold your head up high don't fear no evil. Well, it's not wrong, but it's not theologically saturated, biblically driven truth. Both of these are are written by the same group. Both are written by Hillsong, so I'm I'm trying to demonstrate that, like, sometimes the same group can put out, like, a really solid song, and sometimes you're like, eh, it's kind of a swing and a miss, or maybe about single or foul it into the seats, you know, We're, we're not doing so hot here. So the point isn't really to to pick on any of these. I'm not trying to say any of these are what I would call clearly sinful, but some are clearly superior to others. And we want to fill our lives with the word of God. We want to teach things that are true about God, true about his word, and some teach things that are less than helpful. So we want to be rigorously driven by the word of God in what we sing, word-driven worship. Now there are some songs that I absolutely love, that are really solid, that just don't work to sing in here. So recently, I was, uh, Liz and I were having a conversation with someone, we were talking about uh, the demoniac of Gadara I think it's Mark chapter 5. This man comes out, he's breaking his chains, he's shouting at Jesus, Jesus sets him free, he releases the demons into the pigs, they run. You know, you know this story in scripture. Well, Casting Crowns, this is probably 15 years old, I don't know, I don't know but wrote this song about this man, it's, it's got this very dark, foreboding opening. And he comes out saying, set me free from these chains that are holding me. And then Jesus does, and bam, that rhythm just drives you to worship. But it's not one that we can sing well in here. So I love listening to it, but it's not one necessarily that we can sing well in corporate worship. Substance, singability, and style. And of course, we should all, and we all do probably, listen to songs that we don't sing here, and that's fine. There are a lot of books that I read that we don't necessarily read in corporate worship either, but we do center our lives around the word of God. So, spirit-filled congregational singing to each other and to God. Secondly, spirit-filled gratitude. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are two focuses here. How often we give thanks and then what we give thanks for. So, how often should we give thanks? Always. And what should we give thanks for? Everything. Now, this feels impossible. And humanly speaking, it is. So how is it possible? How could it be possible? It's possible only for those who truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you understand what you actually deserve, eternal judgment in hell because you're a sinner, And what you receive, life with God forever through nothing you have done but only through the merits of Jesus. When you understand what you should get and you see all the blessings that you have in that moment, your mind is being reoriented by the word of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be thankful for what God gives you. Give thanks always and for everything. Crazy. Thanksgiving. About a month out from Thanksgiving. Now, when we think about it, we may think about, I don't know, the first Thanksgiving with the pilgrims and the um, uh, indigenous peoples. Make sure I get the right term there. Um, gathering together around the table and, and celebrating, you know, what God's gifts. But Thanksgiving, uh, more formally in American culture, uh, came into our lives in 1777 during the Revolutionary War. Revolutionary forces beleaguered, And they finally won a battle at Saratoga, and George Washington declared a day of thanksgiving. Then in 1789, for the nation, he declared a national day of thanksgiving. But it wasn't until 1863 that President Abraham Lincoln finally wrote it into the law that the fourth Thursday in November would be a day of thanksgiving to God for his blessings on God's people. Well, these are just common grace reflections of what should be true of God's people all the time. That we give thanks always for everything. I mean, Thanksgiving is just, for us, an opportunity to magnify what we're doing all the time. Thank God always for everything. I mean, think about how this changes your perspective. I don't mean thank God for your kids. Thank God for a roof over your head. Thank God for a job that paid the bills. Thank God for the job that you do. more difficult thank god for the person who is a pain in your rear god you're getting a little personal here and i don't like it thank god for the breakdown of your physical body that's not an easy thing But each of these things reoriented by God's word and God's purpose has become to us a gift. The failing health just becomes a reminder that one day we'll be given bodies that never fail. There's no more sickness, no more brokenness, no more pain. For God's people can give things always for everything. But the Spirit also produces humility, Spirit-filled humility. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. One evidence of this spirit-filled life is a submission-filled life, submission in particular to godly authority. Now, submission is a bad word in our culture today. If you're running for office and you throw out the word submit a lot, you ain't getting elected. But God's word is pretty clear on this. I mean, our culture tells us about the fulfillment of demanding rights. But if our lives aren't characterized by submission to God-given authority, then we're walking out of step with God's spirit. And Paul next the next thing he does is lay out a bunch of these relationships wives submit to your husbands children obey your parents servants obey your earthly masters and are our lives characterized by submission to the authority God has placed in our lives now this kind of language sounds foreign and terribly backward today well why is it so important It's so important because our submission to earthly authority demonstrates our understanding of heavenly authority. He says we do this out of reverence for Christ. Submit out of reverence for Christ. We can't say we're submitting to King Jesus if we also arrange ourselves under God-ordained authority, the people Jesus the King has delegated authority to. On the other hand, lest this creates License for overreaching or abusive authority, Paul addresses this too. Husbands, love your wives. Give yourselves for them. Fathers, lovingly parent. Masters, humbly submit to God as your master. See, the thing about godly authority is you cannot demand what can only freely be given. God works in all parties. Spirit-filled congregational worship demonstrates the power of the gospel in the way we worship, and in the way we relate to one another. So how is it that this happens? How does spirit-filled worship demonstrate the power of the gospel? Our worship is spirit-filled when the truth of the gospel moves us more deeply than the style or the thing that we're experiencing. When God's word is more meaningful than anything else we experience in worship. We are God's redeemed people, rescued by the grace of God. So we love to assemble and love to display God's glory and grace to the world around us. We live out the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Just question one, how does our worship demonstrate the power of the gospel? It demonstrates it when God's word moves us more than style or experience. But secondly, this is a more personal question, does your participation in worship your attendance in worship demonstrate the presence of the spirit of god in your life and the power of the gospel now i'm not talking here about a level of external response because you can be filled with the spirit keep your hands down by your side you can and i'm not even saying that facetiously you can respond to the spirit by raising your hands or keeping them in your pockets You see, the evidence of the Spirit-filled life, though, is the Word of God flowing through us. And like that child who can't help but release the energy, we can't help but release the evidence of the gospel through the Spirit of God in our singing, singing to each other, singing to God with glad and grateful hearts, humbly submitted to each other. God's Word, God's spirit demonstrated through our lives as we worship together. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with him personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Oh God, would you help others see Christ in us, uh, in our lives personally and individually, and also in our life together as a congregation, that we would demonstrate the power of the gospel uh, with spirit-filled congregational worship, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond to God's word appropriately enough by singing together. How can I keep from singing your praise? If you don't know God through faith in Christ, uh, we would love to talk with you more about this. may be a little bit difficult after the service but i'll tell you i'm available uh, now or throughout the week and nothing would delight me or the folks here more than to introduce you to christ himself would you stand please we'll sing together
1: there is an endless song echoes in my soul i hear the music ring and though the storm can I keep from singing your praise? How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King and it makes my heart want to see. I will lift my eyes in the darkest the songs you give how can i keep from singing your praise how can i ever say enough how amazing is your love how can i keep from shouting your name i know i am loved by the king and it makes my heart want to sing how can i keep from singing your name How can I ever say enough? How amazing is your love? How can I keep from shouting your name? I know I am loved by the King, and it makes my heart want to sing.
0: Praise God. I was thinking uh, before I meant to say earlier, so we have a number of people gone today, but even before just even walking through this text together, you're singing with such an encouragement, hearing God's voices lifted together. So thank you for uh, your ministry today. It was an encouragement to my heart. I hope it was uh, to yours as well. So we are going to conclude our service and just break for a couple minutes. will not be long. If you have not grabbed uh, a deacon ballot, and agenda, and the uh, finance report, you want to make sure you grab the-